You're listening to the Irish Times Worldview Podcast. Welcome to Worldview from the Irish Times. I'm Dennis Staunton. Later we'll hear from the Maldives, where the former president has been arrested ahead of a planned pro-democracy demonstration. But we begin in Moscow, where the opposition politician Boris Nemtsov was shot dead last Friday. President Vladimir Putin has taken personal charge of the investigation into the murder, which the Kremlin is suggesting was a provocation. But the authorities this morning prevented some EU politicians from attending Mr. Nemtsov's funeral and refused opposition leader Alexei Lavalny permission to leave jail to attend it. He's under detention for 15 days for handing out leaflets without permission. I'm joined now from Moscow by our correspondent Isabel Gorst and here in studio by the Irish Times foreign policy editor Patrick Smith. Isabel, you were at the funeral this morning. Can you describe what you saw there? I was at the funeral this morning. It was a very emotional occasion. Mr. Nemtsov's coffin, which is an open, open coffin, which is customary in Russia, had been laid in state at the Sakharov Center in Moscow, which is a human rights organization named after Soviet dissident Andrei Sakharov. Hundreds and thousands of Russians were queuing in the street outside the Sakharov Center, the queue stretched by about, about, I think, at least a mile, to file past the coffin and pay their last respects to the murdered politician. There were also many foreign dignitaries attended. The U.S. US ambassador was there. Ireland's ambassador, Ian O'Leary, was there and many, many diplomats from the European Union. And John Major, the former Conservative British Prime Minister, also came to represent David Cameron. The event lasted for about three hours. Many, many of the Russians queuing who wanted to say goodbye to Boris Nemtsov didn't succeed in getting in. They just had to hand their flowers over the fence to organisers and volunteers. Mountains of flowers piling up outside the Sakharov Centre. Isabel, can you tell me something about Boris Nemtsov himself? Who was he? Well, Boris Nemtsov was a, was a sort of larger-than-life character, very brilliant. He was trained as a nuclear physicist. Um, he, he sort of sprang onto the political scene in the 1990s when Boris Yeltsin, the first Russian president, was in power. And Yeltsin appreciated young, lively, liberal, pro-Western People. He wasn't afraid of youth. He wasn't afraid of brains. And he even thought of Nemtsov as a possible successor at one point. Well, Nemtsov served as a deputy prime minister under Yeltsin. But after Putin came to power, he went into the opposition. And really, over the last 15 years, he's grown to be increasingly critical of Kremlin policies under, under Mr. Putin. And he's helped he was, a, he was a major force in organizing street protests against the Kremlin in 2011 and 2012. He's faced a lot of police harassment for his work. Um, and I think he's probably made enemies in high places by exposing corruption and most of all recently criticizing Russia's policy in Ukraine. Isabel, uh, as we know, uh, Boris Nemtsov was shot dead uh, walking in central Moscow on Friday evening. Uh, do we know anything about the circumstances any more than we knew then, or what is the status of the investigation into his death? Well, the, Putin has ordered a very rigorous investigation, so one presumes that's underway. So far, police 
have not, as far as we know, made any arrests. They haven't said that they found the murder weapon, and they haven't found the car which the killer made, made his escape in. So we don't seem to have much progress. It's possible, of course, that the authorities are keeping some information close to their chest as the matter is so politically sensitive. Uh, Paddy Smith, um, the, uh, Boris Nemtsov is just the most recent of the critics of the Kremlin uh, who has uh, been murdered. Uh, is there something suspicious about this, or at least does the finger of suspicion point towards the Kremlin itself? Well, I, obviously um, there is no evidence yet. Uh, I say yet because I think it, it, it will eventually come uh, that Putin had a hand in, in this. Uh, the... Nemtsov shared with a number of previous critics of the Kremlin policy um, uh, a um, a robust uh, approach to criticising uh, Putin. Uh, he wasn't he wasn't frightened at all uh, by uh, Putin. Uh, he accused him of being an inveterate liar. Uh, he was accused by the Kremlin of being a traitor for his position on on Ukraine. And uh, in that that regard, he was liked like the journalists Politkovskaya or, or uh, Andrei Litvinenko, uh, both of whom were previously murdered. Litvinenko uh, is the one about whose death we probably know most. He was killed uh, by drinking tea, which was laced with polonium in London, and largely because a Western investigation is under underway. It's been possible uh, to... Uh, tracked down quite uh, convincingly uh, the source of the of the killing to to Moscow and to to uh, the, to the to the Kremlin. Um, others, uh, the the investigation has been carried out by Russian police and um, security services, and uh, there is there's no way of pointing the finger. Uh, um, Isabel, uh, what are the possibilities? That uh, in terms of uh, of who might be to blame for this murder, I mean, obviously, as Paddy said, some people are going to suspect the Kremlin itself. Are there other possibilities? There are a lot of conspiracy theories being discussed, with both pro-Kremlin people and anti-Kremlin putting forward their ideas. I think, I think a lot of ordinary people I've spoken to in uh, at the funeral, they they don't see a direct hand of the Kremlin in it. There's actually not very much interest for Putin in in killing off his opponents because he's in this way because he's supposed to be a guarantee guarantor of security in the country and having people killed right near the Kremlin looks like your security apparatus isn't much good. But they, people do say that Kremlin policies under Putin have spread, especially since the Ukraine crisis erupted, have spread this sort of hatred in society. There's this very bellicose propaganda all the time that, you know, either you're with us or against us, and if you're against us, you're a traitor. And this hatred in society sort of lays the grounds for very terrible crimes like murder, for violence, basically. And what is the impact of all of this on the uh, opposition itself? I mean, to what extent is there an effective organized opposition in Russia? Even before this tragedy, the opposition was divided and very much weakened by a sort of official crackdown. You know, independent media outlets have been closed down a lot since the Ukraine crisis erupted. Um, Mr. Navalny, who is much younger, he's still in his 30s, Nemtsov was well into his 50s, sort of seen as a potential leader for Russia. He's 
constantly facing legal charges of this and that. He's, as, as we said earlier, he's at the moment in detention for handing out leaflets at a metro advertising a protest march he was going to lead, um, which was cancelled after Nemtsov died. Um, I think, I think looking, we'll have to wait and see of how this death of Nemtsov impacts Russia's political scene. Some people say it will galvanize the opposition. There's going to be such a groundswell of anger and fear about the way Russia's going that people will come out onto the streets or, or become more active in political life. Other people say that the, such a brutal murder will just make people too scared and they just give up and think, well, Putin's in charge. There's no point challenging this administration. They're too tough. It's too dangerous. Paddy, what about the impact on uh, attitudes outside Russia to uh, uh, to Mr. Putin and his government? Um, the the killing will very much confirm uh, the attitude of the West, the EU, and the US in relation to, to the Ukraine, which is the point of of major friction with with Russia at the moment. Um, it it will it, if anything will encourage more sanctions to be to be imposed um, uh, on on uh, on Russia. Um, the problem is that the the West actually, apart from sanctions, has very little that it can do except um, encouraging words and perhaps sending the odd politician to a funeral, and and so there's a there's a slight sense of desperation uh, uh, in the West about what can be done with 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 Russia, a sense that that what is required is patience and uh, a hope that the um, Killing may undermine Putin's position politically, but but very little can be done. Patrick Smith and Isabel Gorst, thank you. You're listening to Worldview from the Irish Times with me, Dennis Staunton. The former president of the Maldives, Mohammed Nasheed, was arrested last month on terror charges, days before he was due to lead a mass demonstration against the current government. An island nation of about 340,000 people in the Indian Ocean, about 750 kilometres southwest of Sri Lanka, the Maldives is famous for its pristine beaches and luxury resorts. But most tourists remain unaware of the increasingly repressive climate there. Nasheed became president in 2008 after he defeated the authoritarian president Mamoun Abdul Gayoom, who had ruled the Maldives for 30 years. Nasheed became a leading advocate for international action against climate change, highlighting the impact of rising seas on his own country. But he was forced out of office in a bloodless coup three years ago and failed to win election again in 2013 after the authorities put various legal obstacles in his way. If Nasheed is convicted, he could still be in jail by the time the next elections are due in 2018. To discuss the situation, I'm joined here in studio by Azra Nassim, a former journalist from the Maldives, who's now a postdoctoral research fellow at the School of Law and Government in Dublin City University, and by Irish Times journalist Mary Boland, who's reported from the Maldives. Mary, can you tell us exactly what it is that Mohammed Nasheed has been charged with? He's being charged under uh, a 1990 law um, which relates to anti-terrorism offences. It relates to, uh, it goes back to when he was in power between 20, uh, to 2008 and, and 2012. Uh, during that time, he brought in a raft of reforms, including, for example, in the welfare area, pensions, um, allowances for people with disability, support for single mothers. Of course, he was an advocate, as you mentioned, of climate change. But uh, on the other hand, he also um, tried to, to reform all of those institutions 
institutions that dated back to the Gayoum uh, era. It was when he set his sights on uh, reforming the judiciary that things really began to fall apart for him. He uh, ordered the, well, he allegedly ordered the arrest of Mohammed Abdullah, who was the chief uh, judge of the criminal court at the time. And um, Abdullah was uh, uh, accused of, according to Nasheed and to his regime, of um, quashing a series of corruption cases involving members of the, the former regime or people with links to the former regime. Uh, this led to um, uh, it was seen as a as a, a serious breach of um, Nasheed's uh, um, uh, mandate as president, and so this uh, kicked off a series of protests which lasted about three weeks, and uh, and it ended in uh, an army mutiny, and then this um, led to uh, his resignation in very uh, controversial circumstances. So now the new government that uh, was eventually elected then uh, was led by a half brother of the former dictator, That's right. and the. The complexion of this new government is what? Well, basically, since uh, this new government has taken power, there's gradually, according to the international community and to many rights groups, there's been a gradual erosion of human and fundamental rights in in, uh, in the, the Maldives, uh, not least the bringing in last April of, uh, of the, the death penalty, the reintroduction of the death penalty after a 60-year moratorium. Basically, this means that children, uh, generally the, the age of criminal responsibility in the Maldives is 10 years old. Under this new law, children as young as seven could, in, in theory, face the death penalty. Now, according to the officials there, if you could call it an upside, that they would not be executed until they reach the age of 18. This, there's been a huge outcry internationally about this, and uh, but the... Um, the current regime has pressed ahead with it. Um, the the climate in in Mali is one now, according to the international community, which um, in fact the the European Union released a statement of concern as last September, talking about the climate of fear in Mali and how um, uh, basically the, the drug gangs there are um, there's a lot of uh, quite quite a lot of crime on the streets there. Now the focus of this crime generally is not tourists, but there is a lot of inter gang fighting. There's a, a very serious heroin problem um, and basically uh, civil um, and um, human rights are seen to have been curtailed. Um, under the current constitution, for example, um, uh, the practice of, one must be a Muslim to be a citizen. The practice of any other religion is considered a crime. So this obviously is not in keeping with international standards and uh, you do, if you do speak out against, uh, against this, you do so at your peril. There was um, a blogger whose name was Helath, who about two years ago um, not only declared online that he was uh, both gay and atheist, he, he barely escaped with his life in an attack there a couple of days after doing this. He now lives in exile in Sri Lanka. Um, there are various um, th there are examples of attacks on journalists uh, during the, the last presidential election, for example, the uh, radio and television station, which was more or less aligned with Nasheed. Uh, its, its studios were firebombed uh, during that because it had spoken out in favour of Nasheed. So there, very, there really is uh, a climate of fear. Um, Azra, can I ask you just to tell me something about this, uh, the, uh, the Islamist uh, flavour of this new government? Is this, is this, first of all, a new thing in the Maldives to have this kind of fundamentalism? Yes, the Maldives has always, well, since 1153, has been a Muslim country. The state adopted Islam then um, but the, it was a, it's a different kind of Islam to the radical 
Islam that's practiced in some of the Arabic countries. But this is being imported into the Maldives now. And there's a lot of Saudi funding coming in for, and I, I would say the most active uh, grassroots movement in the Maldives is run by the radical clerics who are visiting all the islands throughout the year, going to different islands, holding purification camps for young children and women and men and talking about the, the narrative always is that Maldives and other Muslim countries are at war with the West. So everybody needs to pitch in and fight for the Ummah. And national identity is being eroded in favor of Islamic identity and Ummah. But Islamic identity, not the way that the Maldives has always known it, but the Salafist ideology. So... Um, all women are being told to cover up and stay home and that their role is to bring up good Muslim children and be good wives. Don't go out on the streets uh, without a man to be um, accompanying them and to be... And there is a lot of ISIS support as well because there was recently in July this year, last year, there was a flag erected of uh, ISIS in one of the most... Uh, popular thoroughfares in the country, and there have been uh, ISIS-supporting rallies held on the streets without police stopping them, and uh, there are... So, so when you, you talk about this radicalization, as you were saying, there is, uh, there is this external influence in terms of Saudi funding for mosques or schools or clerics or whatever, but in terms of the popular attitude to it, uh, is this being accepted or welcomed by the, by the public? Um, I would say it is uh, being accepted because of the fact that the population is very um, remote from the rest of the world. The Mali, which is the capital, is very connected. But the other islands, all it takes is for one sheikh or one cleric to go and give a few lectures. And people, because they don't have an alternative narrative, they listen and they accept. And they're being told this is the true Islam and the only Islam. What they knew before is something that came out of ignorance because they weren't told what real Islam is. They're being told now. So people are accepting. They're changing their behavior. The women are covering themselves up. Every day there's more people putting on the hijab and... It's, it's a completely different Maldives to the one I grew up in. But one of the alternative uh, approaches to identity is the one you mentioned, which is national identity. And is that sense of national identity receding as this, uh, as this Muslim identity is, is becoming stronger? I think they're interweaving the two things and saying that M Maldivian identity has to be this particular sort of Muslim identity. Before uh, Islam, even though it was the, it was very prominent in society, it wasn't, God wasn't put before everything else. It was something everybody believed in, but it was kept in the background where people quietly believed. Now they have to assert uh, their Muslimness, prove their Muslimness. In going to the mosque every day isn't enough. They have to do other things. They have to tell other people to behave in a particular way. Is there any conflict between this kind of public morality on the one hand and uh, the tourist industry on the other? 
Very much so, but our geography is allowing this to happen because it's 1,200 islands. Everything is a separate island. The airport is an island in itself, so the tourists come to the airport and then they go to their exclusive resort where everything is available to them that would be at home. So they don't know what is going on on the island next, just uh, maybe five minutes away from them. It's a completely different world, but they don't know this. Uh, Mary, is that your experience that uh, tourists tend not to know what's going on in the place at all? Yes, very much so. The tourists that I met when I did go to one resort um, didn't r- even know that m- the Maldives had its own government. Uh, they thought that perhaps it was an annex of Sri Lanka or even of India. So there is really this this ignorance there that uh, people really enjoy their stay there. They're very, very expensive resorts, by the way. It's very difficult to get something that would be... I, I, I know of resorts where it's up to $1,000 a night to spend there a night there um, not including flights or anything the airport itself is even on a separate island from the very crowded capital island of, of Malay uh, it's a basically the length of a runway. Um, it's, um, it, yes, it, it, they're almost like two parallel universes there. You met Mr. Nasheed when you were there last year. Uh, what kind of person is he or how did he strike you? Very charismatic with a very, very loyal following. He did say, though, um, when I was leaving that uh, he, he reckoned that if I did come and visit again that he probably would be in jail. So I think if anything is a surprise in all of this is that it didn't happen sooner that it has taken these three years for him to finally be charged because this... This has been hanging over him um, since since he left. He was deposed from power and very controversially uh, in, in 2012. Um, he, there were lesser charges, which uh, incidentally were dropped about two weeks ago. And now these new charges have been presented. So um, he, he this will not come as a surprise to him. And if he is taken out of the picture by remaining in jail for the next few years, how badly does that weaken the opposition? I think very, very much so, very seriously, because he really is, it, it's its almost like a one-man show. You know, people look to him for leadership. It's not like there are several other potential replacements for him. He's very much uh, venerated by the by those people who are, who are loyal to him. And uh, there isn't really a likely replacement in the Maldivian Democratic Party for him. What about, uh, Ezra, what about the international community? Uh, as we've established, the tourists tend not to know very much. Should people stop going on vacation to the Maldives? Should the international community be taking any further action beyond the condemnation that they're, uh, that they're voicing already? Well, a lot of our income depends on the tourism industry. So if people stop coming, um, the economy will be hurt. But at the same time, a lot of the tourism money doesn't f- penetrate down to the people. It only goes to a handful of people. So it's not really going to hurt the common man that much, as much as it would hurt the really rich people. So I would say that ethical tourism is needed where people should be more aware of where they're going and that the world that they experience in the Maldives and which they're helping fund is not really what the people are. Uh, Maldivian people, 99% haven't set foot on a resort. They can't afford it. They have never seen what a resort is like. They, um, the Islamists discourage Maldivians from uh, running guest houses, saying that it will contaminate our culture, that it will uh, weaken Maldivian faith. So 
they are also working with a lot of resort owners who doesn't want uh, people to set up guest houses because it might affect their industry, the money that they make. So it's a very it's a lethal combination against the people. And the uh, and the government is the government uh, sensitive to international criticism? Well. There was a lot of criticism last week after Nasheed's arrest and the foreign ministry dismissed it all. Um, and they're turning. The foreign policy is being changed drastically. When Nasheed was there, he was courting the West and he was a big champion of human rights. But now the government's turning towards Saudi Arabia and China. And China is very, very interested because of their conflict with India. So China is trying to dominate the Indian Ocean security. So they're colluding with the government, and they're getting a lot of investment opportunities in return. So, uh, Azra Nassim and Mary Boland, thank you. And that's all from this edition of Worldview. You can find more on all our stories at irishtimes.com, and you can contact us at worldview at irishtimes.com. But from producer Sinead O'Shea, sound engineer Gary White, and from me, Dennis Staunton, goodbye.